I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Maite Maldonado. Maite, welcome to the podcast. Um, Now, you are a biological oceanographer. Um, What does that mean? So, uh, we study the biology or biological processes that are occurring in the ocean and how um, these biological processes are affected by the physical processes of the ocean and the chemical processes. So when you think about uh, about an oceanographer, um, we actually do not study whales or mammals, marine mammals. We actually focus on the microscopic um, phytoplankton in the water uh, or bacteria or zooplankton, but in essence, they are very, very small organisms uh, that had a huge impact on our ecosystems. And when you say huge impact, how big are we talking? So uh, in essence, the organisms that I study the most are phytoplankton, which are microscopic plants, aquatic, and uh, they're tiny. You cannot see them with your naked eye. They might be five microns in diameter, and that is about a thousand microns in one millimeter. So tiny, tiny organisms. But um, they actually account for 50% of the photosynthesis on the planet. So if you think about the breath that you take, um, one breath is coming from oxygen that has been produced by the forest on land, and the other breath has been produced by phytoplankton in the ocean. So they actually have a huge impact on our climate because they also convert carbon dioxide into simple sugars, and then they can sink to the deep ocean, transferring that carbon to the deep ocean. So in essence, they control, they have a big impact impact on the concentration of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and thus our climate. Wow, that is a big impact, especially for something so small. <laughs> um, what do you study to do this? Uh, what's your background? I um, did my Bachelor of of Arts, actually, uh, in biology, and I had a minor in marine biology. Uh, I studied in Smith College, Massachusetts. And then in my last year, I actually took an oceanography course for fun. And, uh, And then I learned about phytoplankton and how these tiny organisms can have such an impact in climate, and I just fall in love with them. So I switched gears after that and decided I wanted to do oceanography. And I did my PhD in McGill. And uh, I started as a biological oceanographer, but I did a lot of chemistry. So I consider myself a little bit of a cross between a biological oceanographer and a chemical oceanographer. Why did you go into oceanography to begin with? So when I was growing up, 
I was uh, maybe seven, eight years old. Um, Jacques Cousteau started to do his documentaries. And I used to be completely enchanted by them. And I used to watch every single one and look forward to the next week when there will be another one. I think they were on Saturday. And uh, I was fascinated by the wonders that he was discovering and how little we really knew about the ocean. That's how he presented it. Um, so yeah, since very young age, I was really in love with the ocean, really. And then also, um, I my godparents had a apartment in the beach in the Mediterranean. And every summer they took me with them for two weeks. And I spent two weeks uh, by the water every day from eight o'clock in the morning to the evening with my cousins and my uncle and uh, my godfather was like such a wonderful teacher he taught us so many things we used to go snorkeling with him and fish and all that and he just really also made me love the ocean so i decided to study it so i've noticed that most career paths can be a bit circuitous um it most career paths aren't linear where you start uh and end up where you expected to end up have you faced any setbacks or any um, any turnabouts or career changes? Um, yeah, I actually um, started as an engineer, and uh, and then I did a year abroad, and I loved it. And I decided that I wanted to become a marine uh, biologist. And but at the time, the only place where you could do this career in Spain was in the Canary Islands. And I really didn't want, uh, I didn't want to move to the Canary Islands. Um, so I explore other ways. And actually, I, um, I ended up going to Smith, like I said, in the US. And then I was doing marine biology there. And uh, a funny story is that I did research for two summers in Cape Cod with a team and I was working with macroalgae, big algae that you can touch, feel. And in the team, there was a student working on phytoplankton. And I used to tell her, I can't believe you study phytoplankton. You cannot even see them. How boring. Until I took that last course in uh, my senior year and discovered the wonders of phytoplankton. And here I am. So, so yeah, I went from engineering to marine biology Oceanography. And where did you do that transformative year abroad? Uh, actually, in the U.S., in Arizona. Was it an ocean oceanographic uh, program in Arizona? No, no. It was. Uh, I wanted to live abroad, and it was uh, uh, a scholarship I got to go to this private school. Uh, they select all these private schools in the U.S. Select um, students from the U.S. and you don't from from Europe to go to the U.S. And you don't really know where you are going. So they select you and then they send you. And that, that was my, my destiny. So yeah, I was there. It was a wonderful year, but no water. <laughs> what are your favorite discoveries that you've done or that you've made? So probably you're not familiar with this, but the ocean is not equally productive um, everywhere. It's just like on land, we have deserts and we also have rainforest. So it's the same in the ocean. So about 30% of the global ocean is actually like a desert, very low productivity. 
And, um, and in the 1980s, we discovered that actually the phytoplankton there are anemic. They are missing iron. Um, so one of the uh, themes of my work is trying to figure out how these organisms actually manage to live in these very low iron waters. So how do they change their physiology? What sort of mechanisms they have evolved to be very good at saving on iron and also acquiring iron when it's available in very, very tiny quantities. Um, so I will say uh, that's one of my themes. And I think one of the uh, contributions I, I, I did in the early 2000s is um, we fertilized the Southern Ocean for the first time. Um, when scientists or people were realizing that we had a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there were a lot of proposals of how can we get rid of this uh, atmospheric CO2? How can we draw down and decrease the concentration so that we don't end up with a warm planet? And one of the proposals was uh, to fertilize these iron-limited regions with iron so that the phytoplankton will be very productive and will suck up a lot of the CO2. Uh, so this um, cruise in 1999 was to test this hypothesis in the Southern Ocean. And the Southern Ocean is like a very good place to do this because it's one of the oceans that is directly connected. It's iron limited and is directly connected to the deep ocean. So if you are going to create all this productivity of phytoplankton in the surface, uh, when they sink, you are really going to sink that organic carbon quickly and well to the deep ocean. So yeah, so I participated in this cruise with um, um, a lot of scientists from the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And um, the, the bloom of phytoplankton lasted for a long time, two months. And I think uh, what my research did is it showed how uh, the phytoplankton acquired that iron and what they did with that iron. And because of that, it allowed the a bloom of the phytoplankton to last for much longer than we expect. Wow, that's great. I mean, the oceans cover so much of the planet's surface, uh, 71%. Uh, and if 30% of that huge chunk of the planet's surface is unproductive, um, it would certainly be great to make it productive and suck out all that carbon. Well, I think it, um, I will say most scientists like myself are against um, perturbing the ocean with iron uh, because what what we also know is that when you increase the productivity a lot uh, you after the phytoplankton decays you have other organisms that take over that consume the phytoplankton and they are like us they consume they burn organic carbon by consuming oxygen and they release that organic carbon as co2 and if they run out of oxygen, they can use other uh, compounds as um, to make a living. And the end product is even more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, for example, methane or nitrous oxide. So um, what do we discover in these experimental cruises with the addition of iron is that these ecosystems are very fragile and they work in a very unique way. And we really should leave them alone because even though we think it's a remedy, it could actually end up being a disaster worse than what we have now.
That's a really interesting discovery. Um, and both, I guess, very satisfying, but also disappointing that uh, this project that you'd put so much work into, the, the answer was, it's just best to leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we need to come up with better ways. But very responsible that you recognized that and, and uh, walked away. Um, by the way, how did you put this iron into the ocean? Because when I think of dropping even iron filings into the ocean, wouldn't it just sink to the bottom? Yeah, that's correct. So what we did is um, we we took with us these big, the massive uh, beer kegs that you see in, in breweries. So we took two of those and uh, we pumped water from the ocean into the, in the, uh, their <laughs> massive tanks. And then um, we actually decreased the pH of the seawater to solubilize the iron. So we decreased the pH, then we added sacks and sacks and sacks of iron, um, iron sulfide, and then we let it sort of solubilize and then we released it, uh, you know, and uh, so, and then uh, quickly, uh, as um, probably as soon as our water got in contact with seawater, we lost some because it's very insoluble at uh, the pH of seawater. Uh, but uh, we, I think when we arrived, the concentration of iron was 0.2 nanomolar, and we were able to increase it by 10 times, even though that we lost some of it. So it still, it was a significant iron enrichment. Wow. And what a creative solution. Uh, what are you working on right now? So right now um, I have uh, three projects on the go. So one of them, it's uh, trying to look at the impact of um, aerosols coming from Asia into the North Pacific. So the North Pacific is one of these regions that is iron limited. And, um, and what we think is that these aerosols that are coming from Asia are uh, are mixed with um, trace metals coming from natural sources like the Gobi Desert, but also with trace metals that come from pollution. And so the, these are aerosols that are called long range um, transport aerosols, so they can travel across the North Pacific. And we are interested in whether these aerosols, when they go to this iron limited region, are going to have a fertilizing effect. They are going to increase primary productivity and phytoplankton productivity, or the opposite. They are going to be loaded with toxic metals that are um, toxic to them. And in essence, they end up with a double whammy. They are iron limited, and on top of that, they experience, for example, copper toxicity. So we are looking at that. Uh, so we are measuring aerosols and their content of trace metals, and we're doing incubation experiments with phytoplankton to see whether they respond in a positive manner or in a negative manner. So that's one. The other one, we are working uh, in collaboration with uh, Metro Vancouver wastewater treatment plant, and we are looking at whether the inputs from the wastewater plant are changing the concentrations of copper, cadmium, and silver in, in the state of Georgia. Um, and also, we just started a new project looking at the cycling of mi microplastic in the state of Georgia. So what are the sources of microplastic in the state of Georgia? Um, how it circulate, how they circulate within the state of Georgia and their fate. Do they end up in the sediment? Do they 
Is the Strait of Georgia a source of microplastic to, for the North Pacific? And so on. Wow. Those are three really exciting projects. I never think about um, aerosol emissions or, or like smokestack emissions um, impacting the ocean and um, killing off sea life. But that totally makes sense when you say it like that. Because I guess the air kind of gets cleaned when it rains, right? And then you mentioned there's silver and copper coming out of our wastewater treatment plants. Are people just flushing their wedding rings or <laughs> where is this coming from? No, so... Um, so uh, copper often comes from, uh, so we look at uh, wastewater treatment plant inputs, but we also look at inputs, for example, the Fraser River, like, or, you know, things coming uh, from the Fraser River. So um, silver actually is very interesting because silver, we used to use silver when we developed film in the old, old, old timing. And, uh, and then silver use kind of the phase out and the concentration of silver in the for example in the state of georgia decreased but now we are actually using silver in sport clothing to prevent bacterial growth uh it's, it's a wonderful antibacterial agent so the concentrations of silver in the water are actually increasing because of this so when you wash your sport you know clothing that you just bought new and it has silver in it uh, some of that silver actually makes it uh, into the wastewater treatment plant and eventually in the state of georgia so we've seen an, in an increase um, i will say what i learned in the last five years about the state of georgia is that actually it's an extremely clean environment and uh, we have a circulation where the state of georgia water in essence get flushed out once a year um, so it's actually very, very clean. And yes, we have higher concentrations of silver than we used to, but it's still very, very, very low. Uh, now, one of my favorite parts of this, um, this interview series is hearing about people's field stories. Um, apparently, going out into the field for science is just a crazy experience. Do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? Sure, I can share. I think I share two. Um, yeah, so I was telling you how in 1999 we went to the Southern Ocean to um, fertilize uh, some water with iron. And so this was, like I said, a huge team. And, uh, and I don't know if you know, but the Southern Ocean is very notorious for how wavy uh, it is. And it's because the wind around Antarctica just go around and around and around Antarctica and they don't have a piece of land to in the way so you can get very strong winds and as a result you get very strong waves so we added the iron into the patch and then we uh, hit a very bad storm like a bad storm arrived and um and all the scientists were you know sleeping in their beds and it was everybody was not feeling very well and I guess when we fertilized this patch, we put a buoy in the middle of the patch so that we, can, we could track it. We could track where the patch was, in addition to using SF6, which is a gas that is very easy to measure. So we could collect water continuously from the ocean and see where the patch was, but we also had this buoy in the center. And during this storm, we actually lost the buoy. And... Uh, and we couldn't find it for two days. And this was very 
sad. I think all of us were thinking, wow, this was just not meant to happen. Like, you know, maybe we should have never done this experiment. I can't believe what's happening, but we found it. So <laughs> that was uh, very cool. But at some point, I think many of us were very disappointed. How long was the tour supposed to be? The, you mean the cruise was six weeks? And it, I think it took us four days to test the water and look at the starting conditions and then two days to fertilize it. So I think it was like day six out of, uh, I think it was 24 day cruise or something like that. To face that so um, early on must have been. Yeah. The, the other one, if you want to know, it was in the Arctic actually. And uh, so when we sample, we send this frame big frame with bottles attached to it, maybe 24 bottles. And then this frame is lower all the way to the deep ocean, maybe 4,000 meters or 5,000 meters. And then as it's coming up, we trigger different bottles to close so that we collect water from different depths to do experiments and stuff. So when we were lowering this rosette, it's called, um, uh, polar bear appear and she or he was very interested in the cable holding our rosette with all the bottles and he or she were, was trying to chew on it so it was very nerve-wracking thinking that we were going to lose our sampling equipment <laughs> but we made lots of noise and eventually he left. I love that description of how a rosette works. Um, it's such an ingenious piece of machinery um, and something that we don't really think about. Uh, you want to test water at different depths. Uh, yeah, it's very, very simple. And I will say we have been using this for years, for years. So yeah, it's, it's very cool. And you're truly a global oceanographer, <laughs> Antarctica and, and the Arctic. I call, it, it, uh, I, I call myself an open water oceanographer but I'm doing more coastal work now, which is also fun. I meant to ask, when you say the Southern Ocean, uh, do you mean South Atlantic or South Pacific or? Well, the Southern Ocean is the ocean all around Antarctica. Oh, okay. So we call the Southern Ocean like all around. And then we, we talk about the Atlantic sector, the Pacific sector. So this fertilization occurred in the Pacific sector. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Now, why do you think your work uh, is important to the everyday person? Well, I think what um, what we learn in oceanography really um, is how the ocean works and how the physics, biology, and chemistry are interwined and interact with each other. And and by understanding the ocean, how it works, we can really look at the impact of the ocean in climate. Or um, so. Yeah, I, I really, I'm an, an oceanographer because I really believe the ocean has a huge impact in uh, global climate and I'm interested in predicting what's going to happen in the future or what's happening now or what has happened. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like the ocean has a huge role to play in, in climate change and understanding uh, which changes are to come and possibly even changing those changes. Yeah, and, and right now, for example, I think scientists and, and people in general care about different places in the ocean that might be a source of carbon dioxide or a sink of carbon dioxide or 
or methane, right? We have some areas where now methane is being released. So, you know, what happens when this methane goes into the atmosphere? Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of questions related to the role of the ocean in climate. And especially this year, we've seen that climate change is really coming home to roost. Um, so what do you consider to be the best aspect of your work? Um, I Well, one of the things I really like about my work is that we travel all over the world. So I think I've been in very, very cool places that um, probably few people have been to. And so I feel very fortunate. I think that's really cool. Um, the other thing that I really love about my work is that I find, you know, I do my little biology and chemistry in my lab, but I really like to talk to modelers and, and sort of understand how my data fits into the bigger picture. So I, it's so, so, so much fun to try to understand your data and then, you know, say, oh, I think I have some input from the sediments. Can we talk to the physical oceanographers to see if actually the currents are stronger here at depth than on the other side? Um, so it's this multidisciplinary tea of the field and, and, and talking and, and uh, interacting with all these different researchers is very, very rewarding. Where's your favorite place that you've been to? Well, I think Antarctica and the Arctic for sure, but um, the Arctic was very, very special because I felt that after being there, my view of Canada completely changed. Um, you know, when you go there and you fly over northern Canada and you realize how huge Canada is and how much of Canada is actually inhabited, uh, it's kind of very humble to realize what we have. And, you know, it was very cool uh, to be there and to um, get to be with some uh, First Nation communities and so in that sense, I really enjoy being in the Arctic, um, but I think the Antarctic also was a very cool experience because we were actually not in Antarctica covered with ice, but in the so-called dry valleys of Antarctica. So this is the only place in Antarctica that is not covered by three kilometers of ice. And this is because the wind is very strong and every time it snows, the snow is taken away so here in the dry valleys you actually have very ancient uh, lakes that have old seawater very old seawater and um, you can really study ancient oceans and organisms that were there and how it worked so i don't know i don't think i can choose between <laughs> antarctica and the arctic but both of them were amazing when you're talking about this old seawater, how old are we talking? Oh, I think we're talking like millions of years. Oh, wow. That's really exciting. Now, you've talked about the best part of your work. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Uh, the worst part is that actually I get really seasick. So to be honest, I, I should have never been an oceanographer. But, uh, but I only learned this on my fourth year of my PhD. So yeah, so it's... Uh, kind of challenging when you don't feel good and you have to keep working and I normally lose a lot of weight <laughs> when I go in these cruises 
but you know, I love what I do and uh, it's okay. You just sort of get medicated and you just do it. Well, it's great to know that you can still be an oceanographer even if you get seasick. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> there is some pills that you can take. Now I'm curious, uh, do you identify as being a member of any underrepresented communities in science? And if so, has that affected your, your career or your studies? No, no, I don't feel I'm from an underrepresented community. Um, I actually feel very fortunate. I think I have had a lot of possibilities and opportunities coming my way, and I think I've been very lucky. Um, I will say sometimes I wish I didn't have an accent. Uh, so, you know, that's something that I guess I have to deal with. But uh, other than that, I think, um, no, I think I, I actually have been very lucky and very fortunate to have the career I have had because of the opportunities presented to me. So I think we need to make more of an effort to try to give opportunities. And I have to say, when you were um, painting that image of flying over northern Canada, um, used very few words, but it was very effective. <laughs> I could see exactly what you were trying to say. And I'm sure it's nice to be able to present in Spanish uh, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. When I um, I, have pre I have presented uh, my work in Spain, and I normally do it in Spanish, so that's kind of nice. Um, yeah. Uh, do you feel that oceanography is a very open and inclusive field, uh, or is it a little, little more insular? Uh, no, I think it's very open. Um, you know, we, you can, I don't think you can be a good oceanographer if you don't interact with others and if you don't interact with other disciplines. Uh, so I think it's very uh, collaborative, very open. I guess that makes sense. Uh, you were talking about how one of your inspirations was Jacques Cousteau, someone who um, famously went out and tried to recruit young oceanographers like yourself. <laughs> one thing that we've all had to deal with um, regardless of our accents or uh, anything, is um, COVID. So has that impacted your work very much? Were you able to get anything done uh, this past 18 months? Uh, yeah, so my, uh, my students um, kept working in the lab when they could come back and they read and reviewed the literature. But definitely we had um, three cruises planned in 2019 that were no, 2020, 2020, that were completely uh, canceled. And then in this year, my students were able to go in a cruise in September. So in essence, five cruises um, have been canceled that we could go to. Uh, but we were lucky because we sent um, our equipment and we had some scientists collect samples for us. So I think we have to like scale down our program, but we have been able to um, really keep doing some nice research. So I think that has been very good. Great. Where were these cruises? Uh, uh, these cruises are in the Northeast Pacific, about 1,500 um, kilometers off the coast, of the coast of Vancouver Island. And... Um, and, and it's about a third or halfway to Japan, and we were collecting aerosols too. So it'll be very interesting because in February of 2020, 
um, somebody collected RSOs from us. And at that time, Asia was pretty much shut down because of COVID. So it'll be very interesting to look at that data, RSO data versus before and after. Oh, that's exciting. You get a once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> now I'm curious, you've painted a really exciting picture of oceanography. Um, what background or courses or experience would you recommend uh, to any young, uh, young people listening who may want to follow in your footsteps? I think it's important to have a good background on fundamental science. So like you should uh, really work on biology or chemistry and do your Bachelor of Science maybe in that. So you have very strong fundamental science background. I feel like the oceanography you can learn later, like I did. Um, so I think that's important. And also, oceanography is really changing a lot. Um, we now are able to learn a lot about the ocean from satellite images, for example, and various uh, products, satellite products that are available. So uh, I think oceanographers now have to deal with very large data sets. So uh, having a good handle of data science and for example, a statistical analysis and a statistical methods to look at large data sets is extremely valuable. Great. So that will be my recommendation. And you see more uh, data set usage coming up in the future. Oh, incredible. It's just incredible what's available. <laughs> Well, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, what was the most important course that you took when you were in school? I think it's statistics. I think um, that's something that I think it's harder for you to learn on your own. And uh, I took a very good course. We had a lot of data sets to analyze and to test. And so you're really learning by doing. Um, so that I think those are the kind of courses that you want to go for. You know where you're really going to do it and, and uh, analyze the data and look at trends and how do I fix these? How do I deal with outliers? You know, how do if I want to make a model? How do I make a model and then test the model? Um, so all these things. You uh, paint a much better picture of statistics than I got in school. I wish I'd learned from you. Now, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned earlier, again, Jacques Cousteau was an inspiration to you. Uh, did you have any other inspiration, inspirational figures or um, role models as you were going through your studies? I think when my work was building on the work of another scientist called um, uh, Bob Hudson, and um, he really was so bright in the way he designed experiments and then when he saw the data how he looked at the data and what he made with the data i think it was just incredible so for me uh you know i read his papers i don't know 20 times they have writings all over the paper uh, so he was definitely a, an inspiration when i was studying uh, he ended up reviewing my thesis which was nice and um, yeah, and after that, I, I will say that a person that really inspires me was Paul J. Harrison. He was a professor here and he passed away uh, maybe five years ago. And he was here and became emeritus maybe within my first five years. And, you know, I talked to him a lot at the beginning when 
you don't know what to do in certain situations or and he was just such a wonderful mentor and I really enjoyed the way he treated his students, people, his view about science, research, life. Um, so yeah, I really miss him. That makes total sense. Um, you take a very holistic approach to oceanography, looking at uh, the atmosphere, biology, chemicals. Um, and of course you would um, take inspiration from someone who takes a holistic perspective on life, uh, not just the science, but also uh, your personal well-being as, as well. Now you're um, on the other side of that equation now. You are the inspiration and um, the mentor to many uh, young students. What do you look for when you're recruiting grad students? I, I look for students that um, are able to think outside of the box, that they are not afraid to try new things, uh, that they have an inquisitive mind, um, they're outgoing, in, not in, I don't mean like outgoing personality, but not afraid to go into new grounds, learn new things. They're okay being uncomfortable and, you know, trying new things. Um, I also look for students that are resourceful and, and they try to figure things out uh, before um, they might come and ask me. I think that's really important. Yeah, so thinking outside the box. You need to be resourceful when your experiment disappears six days into a 24-day cruise. Um, and you need to be a little uncomfortable, especially if you're going to be a seasick oceanographer. <laughs> now, you've got a long way uh, to go until your retirement. Uh, but looking forward to that distant date, um, what do you want to be your legacy when you retire? Um, as I said, there, there has been... There is really an explosion of data. And when I talk about this data, I talk about satellite uh, products that we use to learn about the ocean, but also there has been a revolution on omics data. And this is, uh, you can go to the ocean, you collect water and you can sequence the DNA in that water and you can learn about the organisms that are there and what are they capable of doing. But this is DNA. It doesn't tell you that they are doing it. It tells you what they are capable of. Then you can look at, so that's a gene, looking at genome and genomes. Then you can look at transcriptomics, which tells you, looks at the genes that are expressed. And again, you can learn, okay, they have this gene turn on because there is this nutrient in the water. And then we also can look at the proteins within that water and learn about what proteins are um on are working functional but what's missing so there has been an explosion of this omics data we call it as a whole but what's missing is linking this omic data to biological rates and, and processes because this is really what's going to eventually uh, uh, be linking us to the atmosphere for example how fast do you uh, consume carbon dioxide or how fast do you produce oxygen or how so we need to convert this omic data to processes to rates um, so I think that's one of the missing links right now and scientists are really interested on this uh, so that's where I would like to make uh, an end um, I, I, I 
I'm a physiologist by training. Um, so that's what I really love the most. Uh, uh, so that's what I hope. I, th I hope that I am able to um, provide some clever ways to link this omic data to processes and rates. Wow, that's something that most people don't, don't even know about, but it's a worthy legacy. Maite, those are all the questions I had for you for today. Uh, did I miss anything or is there any anything you want to add before I let you go? No, I uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, my, my last words to anybody listening to this is that you should follow your dream. Don't let anybody tell you that you cannot do it. You can always do it. And you will see how things just happen and you will be able to follow your dream. So don't ever give up. Wise words. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.